Hi, it's David Freudberg from Humankind on Public Radio. Stay tuned. Our podcast begins in a moment after this brief word. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny. Or how it feels to be shot? I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True firsthand stories, including 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Search for What Was That Like? on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. The government structure that the framers designed uh, was rather new at the time. It was an experiment. And the development of three branches of government, each with some power over the other two, was new. And it obviously was dependent as a republican form of government, the framers called it, It depended on the participation of its citizens to make it work. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the current threat to our democracy of low citizen awareness. You're listening to a Humankind special. I'm David Freudberg. Across the street from the Capitol in Washington, the stately U.S. Supreme Court building rises four stories above First Street Northeast. Its public facade, constructed with white marble from Vermont, bears the motto, Equal Justice Under Law, supported in the front by eight imposing columns. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Since the court's first hearing in 1792, nearly two centuries would pass before Sandra Day O'Connor was sworn in in 1981 as the first woman to serve as a justice. She retired in 2006 at age 75. On a recent trip to Washington, I paid my first visit to the majestic Supreme Court building, perhaps the closest our secular government gets to sacred space. I had never before conversed with a justice. Ma'am, what is the proper way to address you, please? Justice O'Connor, if you want to be correct about it all. I do. You can call me most anything. A Stanford University law graduate, now with silver hair and wearing a black and white floral jacket, Justice O'Connor sat with me at the judge's dining table in a brown-paneled room on the third floor. She reflected on the nation that was intended by America's 18th century founders. It wasn't going to be on autopilot. It required direct citizen participation. And I think there were many at the time who thought that it was an experiment that couldn't succeed, that self-rule was very unlikely in a society as diverse as what was happening in this country with people coming from various places in the world and, as it turned out, a very geographically 
large country to be in. So there were lots of doubts about how it would work. It was clear, I think, very early in the United States that it was necessary to have some form of getting our citizens informed about the structure of government and how citizens could participate and be part of it. That was essential. Since stepping down from the Supreme Court, Justice O'Connor has championed more active participation in our democracy by American citizens. It starts, she says, with basic awareness of how the country operates. There is a shocking lack of knowledge of our system of government today, lower probably than it has ever been. I look at the statistics provided by the Annenberg Foundation, which takes polls periodically about what people know and what they think. Today, barely one-third of Americans can even name the three branches of government, much less say what they do. Barely a third. In order to become a new citizen of our country, it's required that the applicants pass a test on our form of government and answer all kinds of questions. This is a test that at least two-thirds of Americans today can't pass, including students in high school. How paradoxical in this age of unlimited information. Yes. I mean, we have information out there in theory on the web and in the libraries, but it doesn't mean it's in the head where it counts. And you say it may be lower than ever. Why have we reached that nadir? I'm not sure. I wish I knew the answer. But certainly you can say that part of it is due to the fact that half our states no longer make the teaching of civics and government a requirement for high school graduation. They don't even make it a requirement. I went to a public high school in El Paso, Texas, and we had some kind of government or civics classes every year that I was there. Of course, most of them dealt with Texas, but be that as it may, it was some form of government or civics. And um, today, half the states don't require it. Now, that is amazing to me when you look back and see that we started public schools in the first place in order to teach young people how to be good citizens. And why we would have dropped it, I'm not sure. And we certainly have. Now, America's high school graduates were tested along with those of up to 20 other so-called Western nations. And you know, of course, that our country came in at the bottom or near the bottom in math and science. We were pathetic. And in comparison to all other nations. The president and Congress thought that was something we better take a look at and do something about. And that's why a program for, they call it No Child Left Behind, was developed, which provided public funding to public schools for high school education, not in civics and government, 
in math and science to make up for this deficit. And what the program did was give public money, federal funding, to public schools based on test scores of the schools in math and science. If they got some decent test scores or showed improvement, then public money would be funneled into the school. Well, the unintended consequence in part of that program was that schools didn't get public money for civics and government or history. And so many of them stopped teaching it because they, they didn't have this financial incentive. So do you see the reduction of civics education as directly a consequence of the no child left behind wave of standardized well, testing? indirectly. It's up to the school board what they're going to fund and teach. But it's clear that because there is no financial benefit under this No Child Left Behind law to schools based on civics and history that they're motivated to focus on the areas where they get money for doing well. You see, it's, it's just a natural consequence of it. What are the dangers of low civic awareness in the country? Well, the risk is that um, citizens who don't understand their role and don't understand the system of government are not going to be very supportive of it. They're not going to pursue um, avenues and goals that would help the country uh, govern itself better. That won't be their interest at all. And I think um, to have a successful uh, Republican form of government, as the framers would have called it, or Democratic form of government, as we would call it today, it requires citizen participation. And you know perfectly well that knowledge isn't handed down in a gene pool. We have to teach it to every succeeding generation, and we are not doing it. And if we continue not to do it, what do we lose? Well, we lose the participation of citizens. They're inclined not to vote. They don't care who represents them. They don't think it makes any difference. They don't participate. And we just, we, we come closer to failing as a nation. How do you see the pervasiveness of public apathy and so many people disengaged from public discussion of issues that genuinely affect their lives? Well, clearly, <laughs> lack of discussion and participation is a natural consequence of this business of uh, not understanding how our government works and not realize, realizing how critical it is that we have informed citizens being active in making the decisions that affect all of us. Just as Sandra Day O'Connor decided recently to engage young people in the civic education she feels many schools teach inadequately, at the project's website, icivics.org, colorful cartoon characters let a visitor play games like Executive Command, where kids can vote online for president and click buttons like one titled Inaugurate Me. It has been amazingly well-received by young people. And our website is aimed at middle school students, sixth, seventh, eighth graders. Um, that's a perfect age to teach on this subject because it's the years when the, those youngsters first have the 
intelligence and capacity to understand these concepts. Their brains have evolved to that stage, and they're eager to learn. They love going to school. They like everything. They're not bored teenagers um, interested in other things. They are, at that age, interested in learning. And it's just a great audience. What we did was develop a program to teach civics that incorporated the use of games that the young people could play and that would be fun to play. I mean, you have to capture their interest in, and their willingness to play games, to win points and to do well, to make them play it. And we've succeeded in that. And there are games that are designed to teach them something and be fun to play. And what we've heard repeatedly from the young people who are exposed to it is, wow, it's cool, we like it, it's fun. And if you've got that, you have their full engagement and attention. And they can write to you through that website. Well, they can. And it's questions they can ask, and over time I can try to answer, not all of them, but some of them. And they um, ask all kinds of questions. They ask about why we started it, and is it constitutional for their schools to require school uniforms? Um, what I like to eat and what games I play. I mean, they ask every kind of thing you'd expect a youngster to ask. We're talking with former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on this Humankind Special and Informed Republic. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more about this segment and to find a link to Justice O'Connor's Project for Young People, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. We live in a time when the calmer and perhaps more reflective pace of reading newspapers and books has been replaced to some extent by the instantaneous communications of electronic media, including the internet, 24-hour cable news, and emotionally charged talk radio. What are your thoughts on how this new media landscape affects democracy and our ability to be well-informed? Well, of course, we've had newspapers with us um, since our country was formed. There was some kind of print distribution of newspapers and we later got, of course, radio and television. Now, every sector of the news media industry is losing audiences, except maybe not cable news, maybe not all digital news, but everything else is declining in users. And people are finding other ways to get information. I'm not quite sure what it is. But it seems to me that to see those statistics, it, it convinces me even more that we have to have civics education in the schools so that everybody can understand and somehow evaluate the information they get. They, they have to learn what kind of information sources are helpful 
They need to learn that. Are you concerned that the heavy concentration of media ownership by a small number of very powerful companies skews public understanding of important issues? It certainly can. If you get all your news from one source or two sources, I think you're not getting a balanced presentation. You Not necessarily fair and balanced? Not necessarily. And I think it's a source of genuine concern. I would think uh, for those in public broadcasting, it ought to be a very serious concern. And that's why people in the public broadcasting areas are having to work very hard to maintain uh, a large uh, user audience. So what skills should citizens develop in order to absorb a broader range of information so that we can better perform our duties as the citizenry? It all comes down to education, all of it. We have to teach our citizens about government, politics, international affairs, what's happening in the world that affects them, and how the country world works, how the rest of the world works, and what we're doing about it. What are the problems, and what are the proposed solutions, and what should we do? And you need to teach people how to think. Critical thinking skills? Critical thinking skills are very important. If you can't analyze what you read and weigh and balance proposed solutions, you aren't going to reach good solutions. So we have to teach that. In this current period, we have a shockingly large percentage of the American public who will tell pollsters they believe Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Yes, I've heard some of that. We have people who believe that the health care reform was going to institute a series of death panels. And a lot of people accepted this misinformation, and it has had a profound effect on our national discourse and on our national policymaking. Well, you have put your finger on precisely the kinds of misinformation that can emerge when you don't have all our systems working to provide information that's accurate to the public and to have a public that has the capacity to understand and analyze it. That's exactly what happens. You're seeing the evidence of it and describing it. As a lover of newspapers, are you worried at the decline in newspapers? I am, because that's what I like, and I don't want to go read it on my computer screen. I may have to, no, but I don't want to. No Kindle for you? No. Well, no, I have a Kindle. I love books on the Kindle. Okay. That isn't how I get my news. I want to hold a newspaper. But on a Kindle, I love putting books because I travel all the time, and I can put several books on my little tiny Kindle and travel with it, and uh, it works. I think you're kind of cutting edge. No. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Thank you very much. We've been talking with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor here at the United States Supreme Court. The days when major cities had several daily print newspapers dominating coverage of current events have succumbed to a perfect storm of economic, cultural, and technological changes. 
Many distinguished papers have shrunken, migrated online, or gone out of business, like Denver's Pulitzer Prize-winning Rocky Mountain News in 2009. Throughout the night shift, printers seemed drawn to the presses to watch the final run of a paper some of them worked on for decades. Downstairs, security guards grabbed extra copies as souvenirs. This was the beginning At of the stake in the decline of newspapers is more than thousands of laid-off workers and a city's sentimental attachment to its local paper. Studies have shown that newscasts on radio and TV, news websites and bloggers, heavily base their coverage on expensive reporting originally performed by newspapers. With the evisceration of traditional papers, trustworthy source material becomes less available. But as pointed out by Robert McChesney, professor of communication at the University of Illinois, the downward trend of newspapers preceded the Internet explosion. For the last three or four decades, uh, we've seen newspaper and news media ownership heavily consolidated in the United States into fewer and fewer hands. And the people who own the companies that run these newsrooms have taken you know, short-term profits. They've basically done what's, in, from an investor's perspective, eminently rational. Uh, they've cut back on newsrooms. They've cut back on coverage. They've increased the inexpensive stuff. They've basically derailed the franchise so that by the time the Internet came along and had an effect, America's newsrooms were already in deep trouble. They'd already alienated a generation of young readers who really saw no reason to pick up their paper. To compete with millions of no-cost websites, newspapers started to give away their valuable content online free of charge, a policy many papers have found financially unsustainable. Advertising revenues, historically about two-thirds of newspaper income, have dropped sharply. Classified ads, long a mainstay, can now be placed free on popular websites. So Bob McChesney, co-author of The Death and Life of American Journalism, says that for the sake of democracy, the entire model of financing public access to information must be reconfigured. We have to really understand journalism as a public good, not as a private good. That journalism, like Jefferson and Madison understood it, even though they didn't have the concept of public good then, is not something that you just turn over to the market. And if you get it and get lucky, then you can have it as a democracy. And if they, the market doesn't give you journalism, you're just out of luck and you have to find a king. Rather, journalism should be regarded like national defense or public education or national parks or basic academic research, something the market cannot provide in sufficient quality or quantity, but that's desperately required by a free society. And then it's a public policy decision about whether you're going to have national defense or public education or journalism. And that's really how we need to think about it, because if we simply keep into sort of this brain set uh, that the market will simply come up with the answer eventually through some magical technology or advertising sort of deciding to go back to journalism, I think the evidence is already in and we put it in the book. It's not going to happen. There's not an iota of evidence. That doesn't mean we won't have some commercial journalism that's going to survive. Uh, there's no doubt some will. Uh, but we've lost, you know, a significant percentage of our working journalists and editors in the last 20 years already. And that's going to continue. And further thinning of journalism's ranks will deal a body blow to our system of checks and balances. Robert McChesney. People in power and people who want to be in power, both in the public and private sector, and especially as the two intersect, uh, have to be held accountable. Pe they have to be watched rigorously. There has to be a way to monitor what people in power and who want to be in power are doing so people know what's going on. 
In this age of mounting crises, from oil spills to Wall Street meltdowns, climate chaos to terrorism, the vigilant practice of journalism plays an essential role in safeguarding our democratic society. It needs to have a sort of an uh, early warning mechanism. A great news media will anticipate problems before they become so large they're unsolvable or the cost of solving them is you know, catastrophically large. Good journalism in a free society will make problems that, that might if fester will lead to violence or a huge cost, will alert people to them so they can be nipped in the bud in a humane, peaceful, democratic, uh, rational manner. That's the goal. And then the last aspect of great journalism that a free people needs is you've got to have some sort of... Um, way that over time liars are exposed. You know, some people are going to lie and get away with it some of the time, as Abe Lincoln said. Uh, but you've got to have a way that if someone's lying, uh, they can't do so with impunity forever. And I think what we're seeing right now uh, in our news media system, the way it is devolving, uh, is that liars basically go unchecked now. And I think that in itself is something that is extraordinarily frightening. The primary news source for most Americans is the glitzy newscasts produced by commercial television. But Professor Bob McChesney, author of 12 books on mass media, says that TV news reportage, especially by local stations, is often superficial and unsatisfying. Look at it. I mean, it's, there's very little actual journalism on it. It's primarily... Uh, inexpensive stuff. It's either spoon-feeding us what someone in city or county government says, or it's covering a train uh, wreck or a bus accident or something sensational, something inexpensive, cheap, easy to cover that doesn't require a lot of journalism. For younger Americans, the Internet now rivals television and has already supplanted newspapers as their primary news source. But is the blogosphere lacking even the standards of mainstream journalism an adequate substitute for the full-time effort and investigative skill of trained journalists? We can't have a journalism that's done by volunteers, whether it's people who are, have trust funds and have time to kill so they're really rich or, or they're employed and doing it in their free time. Our goal should be to have competing newsrooms of paid journalists who are accountable, who are in competition. Monopoly is the enemy of freedom and of a free press, no matter whether it's public or private. Uh, so those are sort of the ways you get there in our view. And this is the important thing is where do we get the resources to pay for it since advertising is not going to put it up. And the, frankly, the corporate community, the Wall Street community has more or less jumped ship on journalism. It doesn't really have any necessary interest in it. And fair enough, nor should they. They're out to make money. That's their job. Bob McChesney has documented the long history of publicly funded journalism in America. Until the 1860s, federal printing jobs were contracted out mostly to newspapers in part to subsidize them. Public libraries have long offered free access to a wealth of information. And in 1967, Congress established the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to support public TV and radio stations and their program suppliers. Journalism in and of itself, the news, has never been commercially viable. And this is something economists recognize. I mean, it depended on advertising throughout the 20th century. Uh, 
to provide the vast majority of revenues to be economically viable. But if you took advertising away, it wouldn't exist. It's a commercially viable enterprise. And in the 19th century, it took massive government subsidies to make it viable. Uh, it's a public good. I mean, the evidence screams at you. If we're going to solve it, we have to recognize that. If we think the market's going to magically solve it, it simply won't happen. And if we don't have journalism, we're going to have news no matter what. We will have 24-7 cable channels. We will have websites. We'll even have some sad excuses for newspapers. And we'll have commercial radio and TV news. But we will have very little journalism. What we think we're aiming toward, unless we intervene aggressively, is going to be just a nutritionless, journalism-free news, which will really be much more like propaganda and public relations and spin, and frankly will be the death knell of self-government in the United States. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliard. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Georgetown University Law Center, Colorado Public Radio, Jonathan Cohen, Terry Pickerel, John Vosey, and Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, part two of An Informed Republic, is Humankind Program number 152. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.